Hello and welcome back to Medic in the Middle. Hello and welcome back to Medic in the Middle. Today we're really lucky to be joined by consultant anaesthetist Lauren Weeks. We're going to be discussing traumatic brain injury and the management of this pre-hospitally. So for the benefit of everyone listening then, Lauren, do you want to kind of tell us about your role and what it is that you do? Um, thank you. Yeah, I am a consultant anaesthetist at University Hospitals Plymouth, which is the major trauma centre and the regional neurosciences centre. I'm also a pre-hospital practitioner with uh, Devon Air Ambulance Trust um, and also uh, Basics Devon. And I've been doing uh, the pre-hospital bit for about ten, 12 years now, I think. Yeah, in various different formats. Brilliant. So what's your split like in terms of your day job? Um, I say day job in, in the ED and then pre-hospital. Do you, is it like a, um, a certain percentage split or is it on a sort of a, a week by week basis? Um, yeah, so it's always a bit random, but in general, two thirds of my paid working time is anaesthesia and I do a mixture of stuff, although I'm not a regular neuroanesthetist. I do cover that out of hours. Um, and then a third of my paid time is for the air ambulance um, and then the basics, which is voluntary pre-hospital responding, um, gets uh, gets short shrift um, and gets uh, time when I've got it available. So less frequently these days. That's brilliant. Um, so I guess we'll get on to today's topic. We'll kind of delve right into it. So we're going to be talking about traumatic brain injuries today. And I just want to give... Um, people a little bit of a background of everyone loves a little bit of context to um, these kind of pathologies. So TBI is estimated to affect around 10 million people in the world each year. Um, that data comes from the WHO, the World Health Organization. Uh, in the UK, uh, 1.4 million head injuries are seen in ED every year, and it's the most common cause of death in patients under the age of 40. 33 to 55% of these are children aged 15 and under. I've got a quick definition of what a traumatic brain injury is, and then I'm going to let you fire away, Lauren, because I'm not going to um, hog the podium here, so to speak. So what is traumatic brain injury? Traumatic brain injury uh, is an acquired disruption of normal functional structure of the brain caused by an impact or external force. This is usually blunt trauma, penetrating injuries, or sometimes blast injuries may also cause TBI. However, not all impacts to the head cause TBI. Similar impacts in different people can lead to different injuries based on individual patient factors. TBI, it's worth mentioning, and I'm sure we'll get onto this, is a really broad um, terminology in its presentation from low grade right up to severe and, and life-threatening and, and severely life-changing injuries. Um, with short-term and long-term outcomes affected by sort of sp the specific intracranial injury that's suffered, and age, and then sort of pre-existing comorbidities and treatment that's given along the way. Do you want to talk to us, Lauren, about those different categorizations of TBIs? Um, I know I'm putting you on the spot there a little bit, but yeah, no, that's okay. Um, 
thank you your your um statistics are, are always fascinating i think the really important thing to note as well is that up to half of patients who suffer a traumatic brain injury of any type can end up with long-term consequences because of it at huge cost to the individual and also um to wider society you know for example if those people are unable uh, to function in the way they were before the traumatic brain injury and i think that feeds into why we're talking about this today is because some of the uh, interventions that we can make as pre-hospital clinicians can change a person's trajectory um, and their long-term functional outcome from their injury. So you've given us a lovely um, definition of traumatic brain injury and we probably would then like to think of it in terms of the primary and the secondary injury. Mm-hmm. So the, the primary traumatic brain injury is what you describe. So that's uh, the um, the impact or the force that has caused the injury to the brain. Um, it, uh, as you point out, can be from a number of different mechanisms. And importantly, that's something that we can't do anything about as pre-hospital clinicians once we have met that patient. That's the realm of primary prevention, so injury prevention, uh, road safety campaigns, etc., to prevent the impact from happening in the first place. But where we get interested is when we talk about secondary brain injury. So that is um, the damage to brain tissue that occurs after the primary injury has happened and that's often due to things like hypoxia and hypotension um, and can again significantly impact the the outcome um, that somebody experiences after a um, primary brain injury. There's lots of different ways of breaking it down. We can, you know, we've talked about primary and secondary, but there's also different types um, of the intracranial pathophysiology that's going on. So you can have bleeding. So from major vessel disruptions, for example, um, a subdural hematoma. So that's usually um, damage to the bridging veins um, underneath the dura, one of the uh, meningeal layers of the brain. You can have bruising from uh, little micro hemorrhages within the brain. So we call that cerebral contusion. And then we can have diffuse axonal injury. And that's where the cell membranes, um, the the long tail of your brain cells, the axon, um, gets disrupted usually by something like a sudden deceleration or a shearing force. So changes to direction within the brain. Um, yeah, so the, there's lots of different ways in which an impact can damage the underlying brain tissue. Um, in terms of those different, yep. sorry to interrupt, in terms of those different types of bleeds that you've mentioned, such as like epidural, uh, subdural hematomas and subarachnoid bleeds, etc., is there any obviously we talk sometimes in, in pre-hospital um, particularly with those elder elderly people that have fallen over and tend to have those slow bleeds so what yeah. kind of um intracranial pathology would we be concerned about with those kind of patients that are going to be the slower bleeds so um the the key difference with an older person's brain is that your brain tissue starts to shrink um so you have more space within your skull for swelling and bleeding to occur. So there can often be a significant length of time, sometimes even days or weeks, 
between the impact and seeing external evidence of it so in in the full so the the common scenario would be an older person um perhaps on anticoagulant medication or antiplatelet medication who has often a, a relatively minor brain injury which then causes a slow bleed into that subdural space um, and only manifests at a later stage as often re- relatively vague signs of confusion, unsteadiness. Sometimes they get a localizing sign, no- localizing neurology. Um, that's very different to a subdural hematoma that occurs from a high energy brain impact in a young person where they might initially have a lucid period but very quickly over minutes or hours the increase in volume of the hematoma compresses um, the underlying brain as well as having damaged the underlying brain at the initial impact Um, and because of the relative um, tight brain of younger people they develop those clinical signs much more quickly Um, and so you often get a a relatively rapid reduction in GCS and you might also get uh, localizing signs such as a unilaterally dilated pupil. The key point of different types of intracranial injury is a we don't actually know pre-hospitally what type they've got And also because of this possibility of a lucid period um, between the primary injury and seeing clinical evidence, it's not necessarily reassuring if a patient with a high energy um, impact is GCS 15 at the time that you see them. So I think traumatic brain injury can bite you on the bum as a clinician um, and that initial high GCS is not necessarily reassuring in our sphere of practice. When I was um, doing some prep for today's um, chat, I, I found this terminology, the, it seems to be predominantly used in America, but they call it talk and die syndrome. And I think that's probably a little bit um, of a kind of a synopsis of what you're on about there with the, the initial presentation can be, as you say, GCS 15, seemingly untoward, but pre-hospitally, as you said, it, it's really difficult isn't it for us to see obviously what's going on inside um that cranium and and see the damage that has been done or or is slowly unfolding absolutely we would um in a more british fashion often refer to it as the patient having a lucid interval so as i say there's there's a, a period of time between the initial injury um and that slow accumulation of um abnormal blood um in the brain yeah so lucid interval but it amounts to the same thing talk and die you're right i believe it was um i found like a little nugget of pop culture information on this when i was looking into it so those people have seen the parent trap the disney film natasha richardson uh she was skiing in canada and she suffered a blunt trauma to the head while skiing seemingly fine at the time refused to go to hospital you know she felt absolutely fine a few hours later started complaining of severe headache and then was transferred to icu and eventually um so sadly she was taken off life support due to the the internal damage to to her brain yeah um and we know that um those patients with an expanding for example subdural hematoma um will need Uh, neurosurgical evacuation of that clot preferably within four hours of injury 
to receive the best um, possible outcome. And I don't know the specifics of, of Natasha Richardson's case, although I'm aware of it. Um, but, you know, it might be that, you know, in a ski resort, perhaps you don't have easy access to a neurosurgical centre. Um, and, and even within the UK, there are plenty of places where it is a significant geographical challenge to get those patients to a neurosurgeon in a timely fashion. And perhaps we'll talk a little bit about that uh, later on. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely. You mentioned about the um, the surgical procedure that was done within sort of four hours. Yeah, um, and there there are various um, interventions that can be made at a neurosurgical centre. So some patients um, will, so so all patients obviously will have a CT scan to evaluate the the initial injury, um, and depending on the nature of the injury, there are some that require an immediate trip to uh, neurosurgical theatres, and there are some that uh, require the patient to be managed on neurosurgical intensive care. And for example, patients with diffuse axonal injury may have intracranial pressure monitoring, Mm -hmm. which is where a little pressure transducer is inserted through the skull um, and the intracranial pressure directly monitored in order to optimise medical management of those patients. And then there are some patients, um, uh, for example, um, a subdural hematoma would be evacuated by um, part of the skull being removed um, and the clot being washed out hemostasis um, to prevent any ongoing bleeding and then usually um, the skull would be put back on in that situation. Occasionally we do something called a decompressive craniectomy where we actually remove part of the skull altogether um, in order to um, both treat uh, any hematoma type lesions and also to um, allow for brain swelling to occur um, out of the open skull rather than inside a closed skull, which may end up pushing pushing brain tissue um, through the skull base, the foramen magnum, and, and causing the patient to die um, from compression of the of the brain stem. So uh, there are various different types of neurosurgical intervention, um, but even patients who don't require a trip to neurosurgical theatres with a moderate or severe traumatic brain injury are best managed in the neuroscience centre um, due to various um, interventions, protocols, et cetera, mm-hmm. uh, and then the ongoing rehab um, when they make a recovery. I just want to provide and jump in, if I may, um, just a, a very basic overview of what you mentioned about ICP and intracranial pressure. Um, yeah. Just for those people listening that haven't really over familiarised themselves with that terminology before. So um, ICP or intracranial pressure um, is essentially what it says on the tin. It is just the pressure that is inside the skull itself. Um, the brain receives 14% of all cardiac outputs. So it receives the 700 mils flowing in and out every single minute. Uh, 100 mils of cerebral spinal fluid helps cushion the brain um, in the subarachnoid space. Correct me if I'm wrong on any of this, by the way. And um, so, yeah, just to summarise, ICP is the pressure of the brain tissue, blood and CSF against the skull itself. Yeah, and and we get very uh, interested in the intracranial pressure because... As you've pointed out, the brain gets a large volume of your cardiac output. So it relies on glucose for its metabolism um, and needs quite a high amount of oxygen for those brain tissues to function normally. 
Um, and therefore, if your pressure inside your skull rises beyond the mean arterial pressure forcing blood into the head, then you will st- you will cease blood flow. Mm-hmm. Um, so we t- so th- there's a couple of things here. We talk about the Monroe Kelly doctrine, uh, which is the concept of the skull being a closed box. Um, and effectively, uh, you can compensate for small changes in volume in that closed box. For example, going back to the subdural hematoma. So if that subdural hematoma is small, you know, um, 20, 30 mils volume, um, then there will be compensation for that increase in volume in the skull by um, reduced CSF production and reduced CSF volume inside your skull. But when that subdural gets bigger uh, than the capacity of the CSF um, to counter it, then the pressure will rise dramatically and even small increases in volume will then um, uh, increase your your intracranial pressure dramatically. Um, And we have a uh, a number of 20 millimetres of mercury that is we think of as the inflection point above which uh, if your ICP starts to climb dramatically above that, you will have uh, uh, dramatic reductions in cerebral blood flow and therefore um, a huge reduction in the amount of oxygen and glucose that be- can be provided to that brain tissue. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's um, where that um, prevention of secondary brain injury um, comes in because everything we do to prevent secondary brain injury is to try and keep normal amounts of glucose and um, oxygen going to those, particularly the damaged brain cells that aren't quite dead yet, and also reducing the amount of glucose and oxygen that those brain cells require by um, having what we term a quiet brain. Certainly that's something we we think of um, in hospital and we provide that by um, sedation and analgesia and reducing the amount of um, uh, stimulus that the brain receives. Um, so we're doing a number of interventions to prevent that secondary brain injury. If we can, I'd quite like to um, frame some of this, these concepts that we've been talking about into um, like an acute blunt trauma TBI patient setting, let's say pre-hospitally, and just kind of work through um, the was it the ABCDE model? And I think that might prompt some really good um, bits of conversation about uh, things to consider when we're managing these, as I said, the, the higher end of the acuity patients pre-hospital. So these those patients that have suffered a, a really high impact, high mechanism blunt trauma to the skull um, with reduced GCS and the considerations we're going to take when managing these patients pre-hospitally, like particularly you know, been lucky enough to have you here talk about some of the airway concerns and um, RSI bits and bobs that we can talk about and hyperoxia versus hypoxia and, and what we're going to do with the ventilations and stuff with these patients. Yeah, um, absolutely. So if we kind of start off with, um, we'll just kind of put it out there that there's no catastrophic external hemorrhage, so we, we don't need to worry about that. Um, let's move on to the airway then. So the airway in these patients 
how are we going to look at managing that? Because obviously we've got to be careful with um, things like MPAs if we're considering that there might be a basal skull fracture because we don't want to be worsening any of those um, those injuries. And there are, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, you'll know way more about this than me, but ET tubes and the considerations with that and um, laryngoscopes and the stimulation of sort of sympathetic uh, responses and, and all those sort of things really. So you wouldn't mind talking us through your considerations um, as a pre-hospital uh, doctor kind of for these more acute, uh, high acuity TBIs? Yeah, so um, I do think it's worth acknowledging, um, for example, you, you prompted it by just saying there's no obvious external hemorrhage. Um, traumatic brain injury patients are tricky and they don't all behave in the same way. There's often a lot of confounding variables, particularly in in the blunt trauma setting, where you might think that they have a uh, isolated brain injury, but you don't 100% know. So, particularly the patients where a TBI is present in in um, in conjunction with other injuries, they can be phenomenally dif- difficult to manage. Mm-hmm. Um, the the isolated brain injury, for example, from someone who's been hit around the head with a baseball bat is um, certainly a theoretically more straightforward patient, certainly uh, in my hands. But they, they can be difficult and they will catch you out. Um, so so airway, um, there is a phenomenon which uh you and your listeners will probably be familiar with called impact brain apnea which is something that's only really come to popular consciousness in the last probably five six seven years yeah i think Um, john John hines did a bit about that didn't he 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 wrote quite a lot about that and the um the the cessation of breathing on impact but there's no parenchymal injury it's it's just a um but it's to do with the, the shaking of the brainstem isn't it i believe Yes, yeah, and and I, that's my very basic understanding of it as, as well. Uh, not not being a, a neuroanesthetist or a neuroscientist, I think that's uh, a, a functionally useful way of thinking about it. Is is this kind of shaken brainstem? Um, and I think the reason John Hines would talk about it is because he did a lot of motor um, motorcycle uh, medical coverage where they're on scene extremely quickly. Um, in a way that the statutory pre-hospital services like the ambulance service are, are often not. And they saw a bit more of it than, than we might have seen. Um, and it responds very rapidly, um, it, it seems, to airway positioning, airway opening manoeuvres, perhaps an inflation breath. Um, and in some cases, these patients have CPR started, but actually it's the airway interventions that are the key bits um, and obviously if that doesn't happen then the apnea um, can progress um, to hypoxia and then even in the absence of a severe primary brain injury you can get the secondary hypoxic brain injury mm-hmm. so uh, that's an argument for um, bystander interventions um, things like the good sam app so anything that gets somebody with some airway training to the patient in the quickest possible time um in terms of what i'm thinking of as a uh, pre-hospital critical care practitioner or deliverer of of anesthesia is who am i going to anesthetize so there are some patients in whom it's um very obvious that you're going to need to uh, undertake pre-hospital anesthesia 
So patients with, with very low GCS, four or five uh, patients who are hypoventilating, so they won't be able to regulate their own um, CO2. Um, patients who are hypoxic because of hypoventilation, those patients are um, easy decisions often. Uh, the decisions <laughs> that are often more difficult are the higher GCS patients where they're also agitated. And um, you have to make an assessment um, as to the risks and benefits. And it's not always straightforward. Pre-hospital emergency anaesthesia or fear is a high risk undertaking. Um, and particularly in the moderate traumatic brain injury patients, so GCSs of 9 to 13, you have the opportunity to improve their outcome from their brain injury by preventing secondary brain injury. But you also have the opportunity to worsen their outcome through hypoxia, through hypotension, um, through inadequate management of their um, analgesia and sedation, through inadequate management of their ventilation. So it can often be a reasonably tricky decision to undertake anaesthesia in those patient groups. Um, the classical teaching is GCS uh, 8 or less um, is that you intubate. Um, but again, uh, it, it, it's often person and situation dependent which is not very uh is not very helpful perhaps but um you do have to have a look at the patient in front of you you, you mentioned about um about the, the the hypercapnia and the hypocapnia risks and the importance uh the importance of entitled co2 monitoring in these patients um i would like to cover that topic because i think it's something that isn't um at the forefront of the paramedics considerations let's say with we're supporting the patient's ventilations um with these kind of patients yeah um i think there's a there's a number of different schools of thought so so you've mentioned uh you, you should take care with things like nasopharyngeal airways and i think it's right to have that as a consideration the risk is that if the patient has a face of skull fracture then um uh, a nasopharyngeal airway can uh, cross that fracture and go directly into the brain tissue however if your patient has uh, trismus so you know a locked jaw and is hypoxic um, then you have to take again a risk benefit um, approach and think well we're balancing the theoretical risk of putting a nasopharyngeal airway through a base of skull fracture against the actual problem which is this patient is hypoxic with trismus and trismus is relatively common uh, in patients with a severe traumatic brain injury. So signs of basal skull fracture are things like um, battle sign, so um, bruising behind the, the ear um, and raccoon eyes um, and a mechanism that supports it. But um, I wouldn't let the theoretical considerations uh. um, stop me from making a, a, an indicated intervention for an actual here and now problem such as hypoxia. Anecdotally, it's something I've I've done on in, in my practices having had a, an acute traumatic brain injury patient and with Trismus, as you said. Um, and I think it just comes down to that, well, we need to secure some kind of airway to oxygenate them. So what do we do yeah. in, in those cases, as you say? So Yeah. And that's why um 
pre-hospital and indeed sometimes in hospital medicine is difficult because you are you're trading risks um and the other thing to mention of course with a in your um atls type approach is is cervical spine and we're used to um you, you know pin everyone to the floor and put collars on everybody but we know that that's potentially a harmful approach so up to five percent of patients with a severe traumatic brain injury will have a, an associated cervical spine injury but again you're not going to um you, you know put a collar on these patients necessarily depending on your local protocols because we know that that increases your intracranial pressure by reducing your venous return by making it more difficult to breathe a collar will press down quite significantly on your um, clavicle and first rib and make it more difficult to deep breathe so it, it's it's always a, a trading um, of risks and benefits um, and I think you have to look at the thing that's that's actually happening now before you look at the thing that might happen from your intervention. So when we undertake um, a, an RSI, pre-hospital anaesthesia, whatever you wish to call it, um, the key thing when you talked about um, stimulation from laryngoscopes, et cetera, is, is to try and uh, reduce that stimulation. And the way in which we do that in my service is to use uh, fentanyl, which is, um, as I'm again, I'm sure your listeners will know, is a synthetic potent opioid. Um, and it can be used in small doses for analgesia, and it can be used in large doses um, to effectively prevent um, the sympathetic nervous system being activated in response to pain. Mm-hmm. Um, and we would give that in doses of um, three micrograms per kilogram. Or, or more um, and you need to leave time for it to work um, understanding that when you've given a large dose of fentanyl like that the patient may also become apneic so you may have to support your patient through that apneic phase before you give the the sedative medication and um, a high dose of muscle relaxant with the idea that you should be able to intubate the patient within 60 seconds of administration of the muscle relaxant And the idea is you don't want the patient to be tachycardic or hypertensive in response to laryngoscopy. But you also don't want them to become hypotensive and fentanyl can be a potent vasodilator. So we often offset the effects of the fentanyl with a vasopressor, which again in my services is a drug called metaraminol, which is an, uh, an alpha agonist, which causes peripheral vasoconstriction. So uh, we're using a, a sort of cocktail of drugs to to achieve our overall um, aims of placing an endotracheal tube safely. Uh, we have um, the option of both direct laryngoscopy uh, with a classic uh, disposable laryngoscope, or we have video laryngoscopy, and we've got a device called a CMAC, which uh, has a small screen attached to it, so that uh, the whole team can have situational awareness of how easy or difficult uh, your intubation um, attempt is. Essentially, it sounds like a huge balancing act, really, isn't it? Like you say, we're trying to solve some of these problems to prevent a secondary brain injury or, or worse than the outcome for a secondary brain injury by keeping the patient well oxygenated and having a good airway and supporting their cardiovascular system. But in the process of trying to do some of these things, we are also do you know what I mean? We are we're trying to balance um the side effects of some of what we're doing with um with other interventions, aren't we? So it's just one yeah. it sounds to me like what what you're saying is, is just essentially one huge 
balancing act and just trying to make sure that everything remains at a um, an equilibrium almost really, isn't it? Yeah, so we often talk about the kind of Goldilocks um, anaesthetic, so not not too much, not too little of everything. And the idea with um, patients with a severe traumatic brain injury is you want everything normal. You know, you want their um, blood pressure to be normal. Um, you want their um, oxygenation to be normal. You want their carbon dioxide to be normal. You want their glucose to be normal. You want their temperature to be normal. Um, but normal in these circumstances is a, is a reasonably narrow range um, and it's quite difficult um, to keep it in that narrow range, particularly pre-hospitally. And as I say, there's um, potential for significant damage to be done by um, inadequately uh, performed pre-hospital anaesthesia and as such most services will have quite a strict governance system uh, in my service we review all of the the anaesthetics that are undertaken um, for compliance with our standard operating procedures um, and for the the group learning about what we what we've done well uh, and what we could do differently next time yeah I want to um, touch on uh, some of the JR Calc guidance, which is um, for, the, for those of you who aren't, aren't aware or listening overseas or whatever, it is just our UK uh, paramedic pre-hospital guidelines, really. Um, and it, it has a really good section in there about breathing and ventilation. And it talks about the the norms for entitled CO2. So evident, this is from JR Calc. So evidence demonstrates that the patients who remain normocapnic, i.e. with a value of 4.6 to 6 kilopascals following a TBI have significantly better outcomes. Uh, you'll be able to provide obviously a bit more insight to this, but it's, it talks about hyperventilation, reduces arterial carbon dioxide concentrations and leads to a consequent vasoconstriction within the cerebral vasculature, worsening both obviously the, the cerebral hypoxia and the edema hypercapnia associated with hypoventilation so if we don't vent them enough increases vasodilation of the cerebral blood vessels which then increases obviously our intracranial pressures and um, icp and so on and so forth and carbon dioxide has a direct correlation to um, the vasoconstrictory uh, vasoconstriction effects and the vasodilatory effects of the um, intracerebral vasculature is that kind of about right yeah. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Um, and it is a, a pretty direct um, relationship. It's slightly different for every patient, but certainly on neurointensive care, um, if you alter their um, CO2 by changing the ventilation, um, you will see on an ICP monitor that it, it changes almost instantaneously. So there's a number of physiological principles here that we need to understand. So number one is the vasodilatory effects of carbon dioxide. It's a potent vasodilator, so high levels, as you say, of CO2 in the body um, will cause cerebral vasodilatation and, and raised ICP. Uh, and the converse is also true. So low levels will cause vasoconstriction and they risk constricting blood flow, particularly to those damaged areas of brain that we're trying to rescue with our prevention of secondary brain injury. And the other thing is the association of um, your minute ventilation. So the amount of mils or litres of air in and out of your lungs in a minute 
with um, arterial CO2. So again, that's almost a linear relationship. So the faster and deeper you breathe, the higher your minute ventilation and the lower your CO2. So um, we talk about alveolar minute ventilation because CO2 is removed from the body by diffusing from the uh, pulmonary capillary bread bed into the alveoli um, and then travels out through uh, an open airway up the bronchioles, uh, the bronchi and the trachea out through the mouth and the nose. Um, and so we need a patent airway um, and we need to be ventilating the alveoli, a normal tidal volume, uh, the total air in and out in one breath at rest in a sort of 70, 80 kilo adult is about 500 mils, but only 350 mils of that will reach alveoli. The other 150 is stuck in the trachea, the bronchi and the first few generations of, of bronchioles, which don't have alveoli on them. So patients with very low tidal volumes um, will not be effectively removing CO2 from the blood. But paradoxically, if you're measuring uh, CO2 at the mouth or the nose, you will see that the CO2 looks very low, but that's because you're only getting a little bit of the alveolar gas in and out. So be very wary of patients who are shallow breathing and look like they've got a low and tidal CO2 because it won't be representing their arterial CO2. And I think um, there's been um, a couple of papers that show the relationship, particularly in polytrauma patients, the relationship between end tidal CO2 measured uh, on an endotracheal tube or supraglossic device like an eye gel does not necessarily re represent arterial CO2. So um, some services will carry methods of directly measuring arterial CO2, uh, something like an iStat device, which is like a mini blood gas. It's in patients that may have like a bit of a compromised VQ mismatch anyway. So like chronically unwell COPD patients, for example, who are retainers of, of carbon dioxide in the blood anyway. So there's a yes, there's a, there's a whole number of reasons. So you will you might have patients in whom their available area for gas exchange is reduced, like you talk about with your COPD and lung destruction. It can be something like aspiration. So a lot of traumatic brain injury patients will have aspirated. And if you've got solid bits of um, chicken kebab blocking your airways, then those sections of lung will still be perfused, but won't be ventilated. So that's shunt. So that's um, blood traveling through and not being oxygenated. Um, and then you can also have a patient who's got very low blood pressure where there will be sections of lung which are ventilated but not perfused because the blood pressure is too low and those um, alveolar capillaries collapse. Um, so that we call that an increase in dead space. And as I say, that does not remove COT from the blood. So there's a, a whole number of complicated reasons why end tidal CO2 and arterial CO2 are not directly related. And that's even more true when you're measuring nasal end tidal CO2 um, with little nasal specs, which are fantastic for um, for showing that your airway is patent, because if you've got CO2, 
um, a CO2 trace from nasal specs, you've definitely got a patent airway because you're seeing alveolar gas um, and it will count your respiratory rate very accurately. But the number that you get from nasal end tidal CO2 is so inaccurate as to be almost meaningless. Circulation, obviously, we, we've touched on a few bits and bobs around blood pressures and uh, mean arterial pressures and and so on and so forth, and considerations for uh, ourselves not wanting to increase the intracranial pressure. Uh, yeah. JR Couch says, for these patients, we need to be maintaining a blood pressure of above 110 systolic to attend to cerebral perfusion pressures, but be mindful of the dangers of uh, increasing this too high. Again, as you mentioned, I suppose it's that kind of Goldilocks and the three bears scenario, isn't it? We don't want the patients to be hypotensive with a systolic of 70 or 80, for example. But um, so GRCAL aims for above 110. But then I should imagine if we start going too far beyond that, then we're um, at risk, aren't we, of increasing um, their MAP, their mean arterial pressure too high, and then increasing their ICP as a as a result. Yes. Um, and also, if you've got an ongoing bleeding lesion, then increasing your blood pressure might in- increase um, uh, bleeding. Um, we, in hospital practice, think about the mean arterial pressure, which is a third um, of the difference between your systolic and diastolic added to your diastolic, but also usually comes up in brackets on whatever machine uh, you use to measure non-invasive blood pressure. Um and that's quite useful because the systolic um, it is is reasonably helpful. But if you've got a very low diastolic implying kind of vasodilatation, then actually you may still not be adequately perfusing the brain. But so we think we think about the MAP, the mean arterial pressure, and we try and keep that more than 80. Um, but yeah, a systolic of more than 110. And I would certainly um, so in, in the non critical care pre-hospital practice i would be giving fluid challenges at 250 mils a time in order to try and increase um the systolic or the mean to to an appropriate level it is worth noting so it, it was it was dogmatic teaching 20 years ago that brain injury does not cause hypotension um and it's true that you don't get hypovolemic hypotension from a traumatic brain injury unless there's a, a scalp bleed or similar but patients with a severe traumatic brain injury can do absolutely anything from a cardiovascular perspective they might be hypertensive about 10 percent of them will will be hypotensive purely due to the intracranial injury they can have dysrhythmias uh, they can be tachycardic they can be bradycardic particularly with Cushing's response which we might talk about in a bit so um, they may do anything from a cardiovascular perspective and I would suggest that as a minimum uh, a three lead um, continuous ECG monitoring is wise um, from a um, paramedic perspective Um, and I would set the non-invasive blood pressure to cycle every three to five minutes because it can change quite quickly awesome um as you said that kind of takes us on to d really disability so things like our gcs scores uh, pupillary responses and the kind of mass effects and herniation considerations that um you've just alluded to with uh, cushing syndrome 
Do you want to talk us through a little bit about Cushing's syndrome and the considerations for that? So uh, Cushing's triad, so Cushing's syndrome is something slightly different. Cushing was one of these uh, scientists who's got his finger in every single bit of human physiology. Um, so Cushing's triad um, is the consequence, a late consequence of very severe increases in raised intracranial um response uh, um intracranial pressure and it consists of hypertension and it's usually quite marked it's often above 200 systolic bradycardia and irregular respiration and it's caused by the intracranial pressure being so high that the brain stem um and and the medulla being pushed through the foramen magnum um so out of the um out of the skull altogether uh and that will if if uncorrected quite rapidly uh lead to death um and you also get uh, again some fairly spectacular dysrhythmias at that point as well um often before you get the cushing's triad you will get um initially a unilaterally and then a a bilaterally dilated pupils and that's caused um, by compression of the third nerve, the oculomotor nerve, um, against the tentorium cere- cerebelli, which is the the sort of um, tough bit of um, tissue that separates the um, the cerebrum from the um, cerebellum. Um, so we call that a false localizing sign because it doesn't mean that that's where the pathology is, but the increased pressure on, on in the brain is, is causing. Uh, those um, pupils to be uh, dilated so from again from from a paramedic or other pre-hospital practitioner perspective the most important things in D are to check the pupils and check them frequently so I will check them every uh, five to ten minutes if I'm with a traumatic brain injury patient Um, I will also check um, the GCS and I will do that very accurately i think it's done pretty badly both in and out of hospital by a lot of um clinicians um and i will also check a bm and a temperature um because you don't want um hypoglycemia um both because it can confound your assessment of the um severity of the traumatic brain injury and also because as we say the the brain uh, is a obligate user of glucose um and again you're worse than traumatic brain injury and temperature so we want these patients normothermic so we want them 36 to 37 so hypothalamic damage can to, can give these patients a pyrexia that's often more common days down the line but you you can see it quite rapidly um, and you definitely don't want an overly hot patient um, because, again, that can contribute to a raised cerebral metabolic requirement um, for oxygen um, and some vasodilatation, which isn't necessarily helpful. So normothermic, normoglycemic uh, and an accurate GCS assessment, particularly of the motor score. Um, the uh, Glasgow Coma Scale website has got a phenomenal, um, uh, really easy to follow way about how to very accurately do a GCS. Um, and effectively, you have to use a painful stimulus in the head or the neck region 
and in order to get uh, a, a GCS motor score of six, you have to obey a two-part command. And in order to get one of five, um, your um, response limbs, so usually an arm, will have to will have to come up above the clavicle. So it's really very specific a proper GCS and the neurosurgeons will almost always only be interested in the motor score they're not really interested in the E and the V um, although perhaps your emergency department and your your anaesthetic colleagues will be but certainly that the motor score is the most reproducible and the most important one in terms of what they do about it and the motor score that's recorded by the initial clinician at scene will sometimes be used in prognostication and treatment decisions. So it is phenomenally important that it's done um, well. And as I say, that that website is um, a, a really fantastic resource. I suppose we um, should talk about the crash three trial as well for TXA. And because um, I know that's something that then there's been a few questions about asked to me sort of prior to recording this. Um, and essentially, uh, the bottom line is a, a really good resource I find for trying to find the the synopsis of uh, any study or literature that you're trying to find out. But forgive me if I'm wrong, but the the crash three trial itself, I think the overall synopsis of that was that there was no um, significant difference between the two groups of traumatic brain injury that received TXA versus those that didn't. Um, But it was shown to do no harm and there was a, a a very sort of mild reduction in um, 28-day mortality in the TXA group as well. So, I mean, my summary of that to me reads that it doesn't do any harm, and essentially it's it, it it it's worth giving it to them as it may potentiate to do something. Yeah, it's. Um... It's one of those things where you had to have a study of this size of tens of thousands of patients in order to show a kind of marginal benefit in some of the pre-specified subgroups. Um, for example, they excluded all patients with a GCS of three. Um, so, um, yeah, and, and NICE has just changed their guidance about TXA and head injury to say that you should give two grams as your initial bolus. But I also understand that that hasn't necessarily filtered down to some ambulance services PGDs yet. So you will need to practice within your own uh, PGD for that drug. Um, I feel more strongly about the use of TXA in polytrauma or patients at risk of major hemorrhage because I think the evidence base is stronger um, I haven't looked at Crash Read for a little while now, but there is, a, I think, St. Emlyn's website has got a really nice overview um, uh, and a critique of the trial. Um, I'm not convinced it's the thing that makes the difference between patients living or dying or having a good outcome or having a bad outcome, but it might be part of the bigger picture. I think it depends what else you're doing at the time. Um, I wouldn't prioritise it in a patient with an isolated traumatic brain injury over interventions like managing their their airway or their circulation. Um, yeah, as I say, I feel less strongly about it than I do in the in the kind of bleeding trauma patient. I think the evidence base is, is somewhat weaker. Um, but that's a, a slightly perhaps controversial uh, position. Brilliant. I think there are a couple of things that um, 
that I think um, just about in the in the D section. So we've talked about the A, B, C management. I think in D we've talked about trying to keep things like temperature and glucose normal. I think positioning um, is another significant area where um paramedics or, or first responders can make a significant difference to patients so um having the patient in a head up position improves venous drainage from the head um and can um also reduce the risk of things like aspiration so i would advocate that the patient doesn't have anything tight around their neck so be careful with lines and leads. If they've got tight clothes on, cut them off if you haven't already and sit them up. So uh, we may not wish to sit them up by bending them in the middle if we're worried about potential for spinal injury. But if you raise the head of a sort of standard Ferno type ambulance trolley, you can then prop the scoop a little bit head up. It's not quite as good as you'd get in a sort of hospital um, trolley. But you definitely can raise their head above their feet. And that is phenomenally helpful. So in hospital, the things that I do when I think somebody has got an acutely raised intracranial pressure is I will hyperventilate them. Uh, I will deepen their sedation and I will put the head of the bed up. Um, and that is something that that we can all do and we can all do really quickly. Um and then the only other intervention that I think um, the pre-hospital critical care teams can bring um, to these patients, and I think perhaps might be available to some um, extended skills um, paramedics as well, are interventions like um, hypertonic saline or mannitol, because uh, they effectively um, reduce the amount of um, interst uh, interstitial or um, intracellular um, fluid within the brain to stop those cells from swelling, reduce the ICP um, and seizure prevention. So we'd commonly give um, levetiracetam. So Kepra is the trade name, which is much easier to say, um, because all patients with a, a severe traumatic brain injury will have seizure prophylaxis because it's possible to have um uh, seizure activity, even if your patient is intubated, ventilated and paralysed. So their muscles might not be seizing, but their brain cells might be. And that massively increases that CMRO2, um, which we're trying to keep as low as possible. So, uh, yeah, there are a number of reasons why um, these severe, moderate, severe traumatic brain injury patients uh, may benefit from from enhanced or critical care. I think that was the only other thing I wanted to add, really. Um yeah, I think really um, we're at about an hour and I think that's kind of a nice time um, to round off. Thanks so much for coming and doing this. I really, really appreciate it. So I know you're really busy and um, with lots of various different commitments. So I can't thank you enough for coming to do it. Um, really appreciate it. I'll, I'll let you get on with the rest of your day off. Alrighty, thanks very much. So it's a day at the desk until the school run. Oh, nice. <laughs> well, thank you again. Um, have a good rest of your day and um, I'll catch you soon. Thanks once again for tuning in and listening to the show. I hope you've enjoyed it. If you have, please do and go and follow us on Twitter at Medic Middle. Another massive thanks and shout out to Lauren Weeks for joining us on this episode. And until next time, take care.